Hi, everyone, and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news, and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Extra Hop Networks. Uh, they make a modern NDR-style thing uh, that actually started life as a network and application performance monitoring solution. Uh, Extra Hop's new CEO, Patrick Dennis, will be along in this week's sponsor interview to talk about this whole concept of shields up, as in, what does that actually mean? Uh, now, just quickly, before we get into the news, uh, I should mention we've got a couple of off-air weeks coming up. That means there'll be no weekly show next week or the week after, uh, but I will be uh, posting a Soapbox edition during that time. Uh, that one's with Ryan Callender from Proofpoint. Pretty interesting stuff, actually. Uh, Catalan Kimpanu's podcast will be publishing through that time, uh, through that period. It is a three times weekly news podcast with him just reading through the most recent security news, and you can find that one by searching for Risky Business News in your preferred podcatcher. You can also subscribe to Catalan's new Risky Business uh, newsletter by heading to riskybiznews.substack.com. So that's R-A-S-K-Y-B-I-Z news.substack.com. And uh, yeah, if you haven't checked it out already, what are you doing? It's fantastic. Uh, that one also out three times a week. Uh, but yes, let's get into the news now with our good friend, Adam Boileau. And Adam, uh, we got some reporting here that uh, says <laughs> the Spanish Prime Minister's phone got pegasus Yes, that's uh, probably not a great thing if you're the head of state, feeling like your phone's been snooped on, although you do kind of got to assume that maybe, you know, that is a thing that does happen. Uh, NSO group answering you know, accusations that something like, what, 200 or so uh, Spanish dignitaries' phones had been compromised by Pegasus said, this is not what it's for, and we have no control over our customers. The same, you know, kind of uh, line that they've used overall, but it's hard not to read this and go, this, this is kind of what Pegasus is for. So yeah. Well, it's also it's also like what got NSO into the trouble, right? <laughs> to begin with, is selling to people who might use it to say hack the phone of a prime minister of a European country. You know, I mean, that's you know, it's the sort of thing that's going to result in a few headlines. Yeah, the there was some reporting that suggested that maybe this was Morocco um, that had been uh, targeting the Spanish. <laughs> uh, obviously, this is not the first time we've seen Pegasus used in the region. The Catalonians also had a bunch of Pegasus and Kandiru uh, up in their business uh, recently, according to Citizen Lab. So, yeah, it's uh, certainly getting its use, old Pegasus. Yeah, when I first heard about the Catalonians, I'm like, oh, it was probably the Spanish government. But now I'm like, I don't know. I mean, who knows if they're even a customer? Maybe it was Morocco, right? <laughs> like, but yeah, if you're going to sell this sort of stuff, maybe, you know, sell it to people who won't use it to do stuff like this and you'll, you know, you'll be able to stay in business, which is, I don't know, NSO seems to be struggling. They, they certainly do. And I guess, the, you know, the list of people that wouldn't use it <laughs> for the things that you sell it to them, I guess, is a pretty short list of customers as well. So, yeah, tough time to be NSO, uh, tough time to be Spanish president uh, and everybody else who's been Pegasus. Uh, moving on, and Microsoft has published a report that has looked into Russian attacks against Ukraine. Uh, nothing majorly surprising in it. They have found that um, there is obviously an overlap uh, between the target set of the hackers working for the Russian government and, you know, the the military campaign, right? So they'd be like, you know, attacking a certain region. There might be a DDoS against telco infrastructure in that region. As I say, it's about what you'd expect. Yes, exactly. And we haven't really seen 
you know, great alignment between, you know, full-on kinetic warfare and cyber in that context before. So it's kind of interesting to see how they're trying to use it. And I'm sure there'll be lots of, you know, sort of opinion pieces at military colleges around the world written about this. But it doesn't seem... A surprising or B super effective, um, and you know, well, I think this is this this looks like Babby's first integrated cyber kinetic op, right? Like like this is this is seems like starter level, you know, not like the Viasat thing, which was totally badass. This this is just like, oh, we're rolling into this area, so DDoS the telcos or whatever. It's like <laughs> just yeah, you know, it's not exactly tightly integrated, is what no, I'm getting. At. No, exactly, and we're all still learning how these things should be done, um, and it'll take a while, I think, before we know how to do cyber and kinetic at the same time. Um, but yeah, my Microsoft, I guess, has at least better than average visibility of what's going on uh, by virtue of you know, Windows and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, interesting to see that. Like, interesting to see this kind of coming out in real time as opposed to after the fact. You know. Yeah. Now, look, I've, I've included a link this week to a story from Matt Burgess in Wired. Uh, the headline is Russia is being hacked at an unprecedented scale. Uh, we've seen other headlines like this over the last couple of months. Uh, and the reason we haven't really talked about this topic on the show is because, OK, yes, there's a lot of people volunteering, uh, you know, jumping into Telegram uh, channels being run by the Ukrainian government and offering to hack Russian things. And, you know, a lot of these attacks are successful. We're seeing uh, a whole bunch of data getting exfiltrated. It's being hosted on DDoS secrets and stuff. The reason we haven't really spoken about this is because honestly, what does it amount to? You know, so you've say you've stolen a terabyte of data from Russia's state-owned railway corporation. I mean, by and large, who cares, right? This is this is why we haven't really invested a lot of time and effort into talking about this so far. Yeah, it's hard to see impact that kind of kind of matters. I mean, there's a, I guess there's a degree of harassment and you know reminding everyday Russians that stuff's going on that doesn't match perhaps the narrative that they're seeing from their government. But yeah, it's it is hard. Well, I to mean, see. how is the average how is the average Russian going to know that one of their local government departments had some data exfil <laughs> that's on DDoS secrets? You know, like I just uh, I don't see it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the denial of service stuff maybe has some impact, mm-hmm. but I mean, if it's just a case of like your Russian streaming TV glitches periodically, are you really gonna, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what's the impact really? So, um, I mean, it's gonna be an interesting, like, much like the previous thing, like, it's gonna be interesting to see what this looks like in the wrap after this is all done, you know, whether or not this idea of Ukraine mobilizing, you know, randoms and Telegram actually did anything useful, and if so, what? It'll be good material for writing papers at War College, you know, five years yeah. from now, but not so useful. Yeah, now. so the, this week on Risky Business, we talk about what's going to be fueling slide decks uh, for the next uh, 10 years, basically. That's, <laughs> yes. that's the, that's the yes. theme this week. Uh, there's another story doing the rounds, and I've, you know, I've had people uh, kind of ask me about this one, uh, which I think is funny, right? Because uh, apparently. Russia took over some area in Ukraine, knocked out the internet access. I think there could have been, even been some uh, physical damage to some cable infrastructure. And when this access came back in this region, uh, it was in Kherson in, in Ukraine. Lo and behold, the traffic was being routed via Russian telcos, not Ukrainian telcos. And everyone's like, oh, you know, the crafty Russians, uh, this is a second opportunity. And no, of course they're going to route it through their networks. Why would you plug in an area you control into an enemy network? It makes no sense. Of course they're going to do it this way. Yeah, I mean, you do wonder, eh? Like, what are they going to do? Like, phone Ukraine Telecom and say, hey, can we get a, you know, peering circuit? Can we get some peering? Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, of course it has to go back through Russia because that's where they're <laughs> they're part of the internet. So yeah. Mm. So I'm a little bit surprised to see ink being you know ink being used to write about this one. Um, I, I, you'd seen this floating about as well, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had basically the same thought, right? I mean, uh, you used to work at an ISP. The idea that you would phone your enemy and ask for a circuit, <laughs> you know, in the middle of a war, yeah, not 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 going to happen. So. Yeah, yeah, not, <laughs> not really going to happen. Now, I want to talk about the FBI's uh, transparency report, right? Because they published this transparency report looking at the way that they used uh, surveillance data, stuff collected under 702, which is, you know, very controversial, et cetera, et cetera. And for the first time, they released numbers about like certain types of queries and stuff. And one of them was like three point something million queries involving US person data or something. And uh, two million of those queries were like a batch query related to investigating attacks against, you know, cyber attacks against US critical infrastructure. And okay, that's fair enough. But unless you give us more information about what those batch queries were and what you were trying to do with them, how is this a transparency report that is at all useful? Now, I'm not the only one who had this thought because after I'd been sitting around puzzling on this one for a while, uh, Ron Wyden, actually, the, the US Senator, uh, actually uh, issued a statement saying much the same thing, saying that, you know, you look at these numbers and they're either highly alarming or entirely meaningless. Uh, what does he say here? He said, uh, the FBI must be transparent about the particular circumstances in which it conducted a staggering 1.9 million additional queries in 2021. You know, the public deserves to know whether the FBI has fully addressed the extensive abuses of its 702 search authorities, blah, 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 blah. blah. But, you know, he's got a point, which is you can't put out a transparency report that contains a bunch of meaningless numbers. It, it's That's not how transparency works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you read the numbers, and it's like, well, what conclusions? I mean, the point of transparency is for you to be able to conclude things about the effectiveness of the oversight and the effectiveness of the process, whether the access and data that they have under seven hundred two is effective and useful and appropriate. And I don't know that you can arrive at any, you know any reasoning about those from the transparency report. So yeah perhaps not super transparent. Um, well, it's hard as well because there's sources and methods and whatever. I mean, what I suspect is that they gathered selectors related to American citizens who maybe worked in uh, certain areas of critical infrastructure and ran that against data sets in, that had been collected under 702 to see if the Russians or whoever were targeting someone that they had in that data set. I don't know. But I mean, like, just spell it out, right? Like, help us to understand. That's what transparency is. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know that, I mean, given that you're perfectly capable of, of kind of reasoning through what they might be doing, the idea that exposing, you know, that that was sources and methods or that that was, you know, kind of that level of detail would help Russians. I mean, Russians are just as capable of figuring out what the Americans, you know, what the FBI could do with the data they've got. So, yeah, it, it, I don't see that, that that angle would be particularly damaging. And it is, it's just hard to tell whether this is appropriate and useful. I mean, you know, it's meant to be for foreign intelligence surveillance. And if they're looking at what Russians are doing, that seems appropriate. But we, yeah, we just can't tell uh, whether it means much. No, and I sort of think it's it's like they're undermining their own interests because they put the big scary numbers in but don't actually really explain what they're about, right? And that's the sort of thing that gets you into trouble with the politicians. So yeah, exactly, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. <sighs> what else have we got here? CyberScoop has uh, some reporting here on what looks to be a coordinated attack against physical infrastructure in France. Uh, people unknown uh, have been digging up fiber cables and uh, cutting them. And uh, this caused some serious trouble, apparently. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously we've seen plenty of fibre cuts that are, you know, accidental or are maybe on purpose but not super coordinated. This was interesting because it was coordinated cuts in a number of areas, you know, geographical areas at the same time, which applies implies some understanding of how the diversity, how the structure of the network works. Uh, and then the other little nuance was they cut the cables twice, you know, kind of like a foot apart or whatever, which makes splicing them back together extra difficult. Uh, and that is sort of a... That's a nuance that perhaps, you know, if you were just, uh, you know, an activist, perhaps you wouldn't have thought of. Uh, so it just, it's interesting because it seems a little bit more informed than average, um, which, you know, given the current circumstances, is a bit sus. It is. Uh, Dina Temple-Raston and Sean Powers at uh, The Record have an interview here. They've published an interview uh, with Frank Pace, who is the administrator of the Hawaii Office of Homeland Security, uh, about this very mysterious apparent cyber attack against Hawaii's undersea cable. Uh, details are still a bit thin, but they've filled in a few little blanks here. Yeah, we. I guess we knew that something about the control systems for the cable being compromised. This also says that there was a private company that was involved that was the initial point of entry and then onwards into control infrastructure. Um, the interview with the Homeland Security guy is pretty high level. There isn't a whole bunch of detail other than kind of generically what submarine cables are and, and why you'd want to look at them. But yeah, certainly, you know, it's certainly interesting given the circumstances for people to be going after, um, after cable infrastructure in the US. Yeah, well, cable infrastructure in the US and we've got people chopping it up in France as well. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's not a trend yet and we still don't know all that much about what is, you know, what attackers were trying to do with this Hawaiian cable. But uh, yeah, just something I'm flagging now because mm -hmm. it could uh, turn into something later. Now, speaking of flagging something now that could turn into something later, hacktivists have apparently leaked a whole bunch of data that they stole from the Nauru police force. Now, Nauru is a small Pacific nation, and it is also one of the countries where Australia sends uh, people who arrive by boat who are seeking to immigrate to Australia uh, for offshore detention and processing, right? So this is, a, this is a, a country that is at the core of some really controversial stuff in Australia. And there's an election campaign happening in Australia right now. The election is in a couple of weeks. And this happens. Now, uh, I mean, look, it could be activists who are fired up uh, about Australia's, you know, the, the uh, less than savoury aspects of Australian uh, uh, immigration policy. But this does have the faint whiff of foreign <laughs> interference about it. I've got to be honest. Now, now, regardless of whether or not this was China trying to destabilise an Australian election or, you know, whoever, who, whoever it could be, regardless of whether or not that's true, I think the the opposition that's seeking to win government in the upcoming election needs to be very careful about whether or not they use any of the data that comes from these leaks because that opens them up to being attacked by the government as like uh, leaning into some sort of foreign info op, even if it's not one, right? It's just these sort of leaks right up next to an election, they just make me a bit nervous. It, it, what, what, do you, what did you make of this? Yeah, no, I, I certainly agree with your, you know, the sniff test of does this feel like the Guardians of Justice or Peace or, you know, what, you know one yeah. of the other kind of fake activist groups. Well, it's a, it's a group called ACAB, which stands for All Cops Are Bastards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, exactly. Um, same sort of same sort of flavour, right? Yeah, exactly, same sort of flavour. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether anything, you know, whether we hear much more about it, whether the data ends up getting used, you know, either politically or otherwise by activists but 
it, yeah, it just smells sus, especially given the relationship with China and Australia at the moment, and as you can, especially because elections happening, just smells sus. So as I say, just flagging that one, just in case. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that just feels a bit. <laughs> now, uh, Krebs actually has an interview up with a former FBI guy who's like 30 years old who has started a company that's designed, uh, that, that, that is seeking to deal with this problem of fraudulent uh, or fake emergency da- data requests from US companies, you know, so the social media companies and, and whatever. These are things that we've spoken about before. An attacker can take over a cop's email mailbox and start firing off these emergency uh, data requests to essentially dox people, uh, dox their targets, get their private info and whatever. So you and I said that this is a problem that's... Um, uh, you know, very, very difficult to solve, perhaps impossible to solve. And this guy has come out and done an interview saying, no, this is exactly what my startup is designed to combat. And I've got to say, you read through it and you think, while it might not completely solve the problem, um, it seems like there's some good ideas here. Yeah, I was actually, yeah, I was surprised that the, this does seem like in a pretty interesting approach. Essentially, this guy's company, Codex, uh, runs a like intermediary you know portal interface for companies that are going to receive emergency data requests and then it kind of tracks the origin of those requests and a bunch of metadata about them to try you know like originating ip addresses email addresses used how frequently they do it you know all those kinds of things and tries to do analytics to assign some kind of risk rating so sort of similar to what you would expect a bank to do for real like real-time fraud detection you know provide some extra context and data to you know assign sort of a reputation or a risk score to any particular request to then you know help people make informed choices and that's not a stupid idea actually no Um, and it's like if some email address pops up that that has never really made these types of requests before and then he's asking like every single one of this startup's customers for some emergency data like that might suggest something is up yeah and i mean obviously this does depend on them getting enough kind of enough customers, enough visibility to make that data useful. But, you know, given there's what, like 18,000 different local law enforcement agencies in the US, you know, you can really see how this is a very big problem, you know, for social media companies, other internet firms, right? And having a central nexus through which this goes that can kind of gather that sort of information, yeah, it seems like a good idea if they can scale it up, if they can put it together and, and actually, you know, give good data. Seems smart. I mean, good for him. So Matt Donahue, uh, founder of Codex, uh, best of luck to you. We hope it goes well. Uh, and of course, you know, as they scale up, there's going to be other ideas they have too. There'll, there'll be more and more options, verification, rigid verification procedures, things like that. So yeah, good luck to him and uh, and that company. Uh, and speaking of, there was actually, uh, CyberScoop actually has a report this week about uh, an emergency data request where Twitter apparently wound up giving the Twitter information of an account to a ransomware actor uh, who managed to lodge one of these uh, fraudulent EDRs. Yeah, this was uh, Alexander Sikorin, uh, aka Lalatu or Sheriff, who I think Krebs has written about a, a fair bit as well. And it's a pretty kind of active and, and I guess, bolshy, you know, kind of you know, outspoken ransomware guy. Um, and yeah, is harassing uh, some researcher that's been looking into his operations. So yeah, I mean, this is clearly a thing that is, is being used by adversaries. You know, Krebs had actually pulled together a bunch of stats from the various companies about how many requests and i was surprised at actually how many there were so like clearly you know this is a thing that's being used beyond just you know lapsus and a few other kids 
Indeed, indeed. Now, staying with Twitter, and I'm afraid we're going to have to talk about it, Adam. I'm afraid we are. Because uh, this is just a topic where I, I just haven't really seen, you know, I've seen a lot of people talking about this and kind of missing some pretty big um, parts of it, right? So Elon Musk, of course, is planning at this stage uh, to take over Twitter, make it private, and he's saying, I'm going to release release the algorithm, right? <laughs> Now, of course, this has got some people very excited because they think it's going to result in, you know, some amazing biases against uh, conservative discourse being laid bare for all to see. But I think, I guess the reason I wanted to discuss this is I, I would be surprised if Twitter knew how Twitter's algorithm worked. Uh, so given, given that it's almost certainly going to have some pretty unwieldy ML in it and a whole bunch of features that are, that are used in this ML model that aren't immediately obvious... You know, we often talk about observability being a problem in ML. So I don't really understand what it is that people think this algorithm is. Has this been driving you crazy as well? Yes, it does. And it drives me crazy in part because there are some some places where you know, opening the algorithm or providing inspectability makes a heap of sense. Election systems, for example, right? Things that probably should be, you know, if not open sourced, but I mean, like at least observable. Um, but the idea of doing that for something like Twitter, which as you say, a whole bunch of machine learning in it, there's a bunch of stuff that really depends on the structures and data and things that as an outsider aren't going to make any sense, right? I mean, the you know, you can look at it, even if it, even if it was an algorithm, like one thing that was static that you could go look at, the amount of context... Which, which it's not, to, by which the it's way, not, we should right? say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, the amount of context and understanding you'd have to have would be, you know, kind of useless. And then we get to the machine learning part. And I mean, I don't know how overall, as an industry, we're going to solve observability of machine learning systems because, you know, there isn't an algorithm. It's a data set that was used for training and now is used to make inferences or, or arrive at choices. And even researchers who, who build these things don't understand necessarily why they make the choices. I mean, the, the field of understanding why your ML has learned a particular thing from the data you gave it, and like that's, it, that's still really out there stuff, right? I mean, academics and, and researchers and people, you know, are still building the tools to try and even visualize the insides of ML systems so that we can reason about them. So... Yeah, it drives me nuts too, because like, how are you supposed to draw any conclusions about a system that's not only not an algorithm, not only a bunch of ML, but it's also dynamic, right? It's changing as, yes. as new data comes into Twitter in real time, what the ML thinks is going to change. Yeah. Well, of course, because they've got to set it up with, you know, with like a feedback mechanism, right? So if you yes. actually want to change the outcomes, you change the feedback that you're giving the model. But inspecting the model on its own without looking at the processes and procedures that are actually shaping its decisions, it's just, yeah, it's making me mental. So, yeah, I just wanted to briefly mention that. Anyway, not really a cyber story, but, you know, it's kind of cyber adjacent. And I just wanted to mention that and let you know that, yes, if you are hoping, if you're hoping to find smoking guns in whatever Elon Musk releases, uh, yeah, I think you going to be disappointed. Now, back to some more bread and butter info sec. Kronos, this is the payroll and like timesheets company that was ransomwared late last year. We spoke about it uh, a couple of times. Uh, a whole bunch of big companies use them and yeah, they got ransomwared. A whole bunch of hours data got lost and people didn't get paid. Now, I'm sure some companies have uh, figured out 
how to uh, pay people the correct amounts or, you know, worked out an average or something or, or worked out something that their workforce is happy with. Uh, but I'm guessing not all of them uh, were able to do that because there is now a class action uh, uh, heading to the courts. Uh, well, it's just being launched right now, which is going after employers that used Kronos and, uh, you know, weren't able to actually pay their people correctly afterwards. Yeah, it turns out that... Uh the law requires you to pay employees for the work that they've done. <laughs> that appears to be the basis of the lawsuit. Um, so yeah, for companies that used Kronos being targeted by this, you know, by this class action, uh, I mean, A, there's obviously an opportunity for employees to perhaps claw back some extra money or some compensation for, you know, the sort of the losses and the inconvenience. But from the point of view of ransomware response or for, you know, other kind of cyber attacks that leads to services being unavailable, like this is certainly an interesting extra angle. I mean, we've seen, you know, ransomware crews, you know, talk to customers or try and apply pressure on companies uh, to pay out a ransom. But I mean, the specter of a class action suit after one of your suppliers gets knocked out, like that's an interesting wrinkle that, you know, if you're thinking about risk management uh, in your organisation that perhaps you hadn't really thought about. I mean, on the face of it, the class action does look pretty reasonable. Um, so, yeah, definitely uh, uh, you know, a wrinkle that I hadn't thought about uh, in this particular case. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, people must have backup procedures, right? And not just for payroll. You've got to think about your legal liability in cases like this, I guess. You know, you can't always assume that these systems are going to be available. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like, you know, disaster planning and business continuity planning and stuff, like if you're, you know, ISO 27K wanting or whatever, maybe this is an extra sort of thing that, you know, will end up in standards like that, you know, of, of how you deal with outages uh, of services that you depend on in a cloud and SaaS environment um, because of risks like this. So, yeah, yeah uh, sucks to be risk people. <laughs> <laughs> But what's new? Uh, what else have we got here? <laughs> Ransomware is still just uh, ticking over, as you'd expect. Uh, we've got a German wind farm operator. They've confirmed a cybersecurity incident. They haven't said it's ransomware, but they've popped up on one of the leak sites. Uh, the Record has written a bunch of uh, stories this week about various victims of, uh, of ransomware. There's been an online library service in Germany uh, that's been lockbitted, I think. Uh, Trinidad's largest supermarket chain has been crippled by a cyber attack. Uh, what else? We've got a state university in, uh, in Texas that's also been rinsed. So, yeah, certainly that was the one uh, that uh, that was the one that tweeted out oh my god everyone turn off their computers because ransomware <laughs> Which, <laughs> yeah you know, i did see that one yeah emergency broadcast system test no not so much not a test this time yeah i know and people were saying oh you know surely there's going to be better response options than doing that but i mean you work with what you have right yeah. and um it's easy to sit there and judge them for not being ready but you know if even if they manage to save a few systems that way well <laughs> yeah. It was a I mean, if decision, anything, get, getting to the Twitters and, and, you know, being empowered to go publish that quickly, honestly, seems like a pretty good response plan to me. So, you know, I think thumbs up to them. Thumbs up. There you go. You get the Adam Boileau endorsement. Uh, <laughs> North Carolina, meanwhile, has become the first US state to prohibit public entities from paying ransoms to ransomware crews. It's not really clear whether or not this law would prohibit their insurers uh, from being able to pay on their behalf. But yeah, no taxpayer money uh, is that they cannot use taxpayer money to pay ransoms. And um, yeah, there's a similar law in Pennsylvania. The Senate uh, just recently approved a bill there that would 
ban the use of taxpayer funds to pay ransoms, except in cases where the governor has authorized the payment. I think that's a really interesting and sensible carve out, to be honest, because if you, you know, if you pass a really rigid uh, law on this and there's no car, you know, there's no way to pay a ransom, you know, you can wind up with some pretty bad outcomes. Yeah, that does seem sensible that maybe it's worth at least considering the option. But um, the question I had, I guess, reading this was, you know, how many Russian or whoever else attackers stop to think like, oh, wait, this is North Carolina. Let's not bother targeting that because it's probably easier to just hack everybody and ransom everybody. And then, hey, it turns out one state isn't allowed to pay. Well, you know, so be it. It's one out of 50 states. Well, you know, that's just, you know, cost of doing business. So I, I wonder if it will actually change the you know the likelihood of them being ransomed yeah well i'm gonna say probably not uh to that uh, to be honest (laughs) right github has released more details on that mysterious like travis ci and heroku uh stolen oauth token hack a little while ago looks like uh whoever was behind this was just out to steal source code gee does that sound familiar sound like anyone (laughs) we know um so yeah someone's been out there yeah just stealing source code and i'm guessing you know, when we spoke about Lapsus stealing a bunch of source code, one possibility, one possible motivation we didn't really talk about all that much is that they just they just like mining it for further secrets that they can use for further hacks. But yeah, it looks like in this case, someone was just after source and it was targeted, they say. Yeah, it looks like they um, GitHub published in details about what the uh, attackers did, you know, pulled out lists of the repositories, lists of organizations, rummaged through and then, you know, kind of did targeted retrieval of the of the repository. So, yeah, good to see they're still following up and publishing more details uh, as, you know, they understand more about what happened. Uh, and yeah, it does, you know, it does smell pretty lapsusy. It does, right? Like I mean, it could be it, god, it, it could be, be anyone, anyone of course, but yeah, but yeah, but it does I mean, you obviously had the same thought as yes, me. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, Moving on, and the Open Source Security Foundation has released a tool that is designed to scan for malicious packages in popular open source repos. Adam? Yeah, this is some some great work that looks at, you know, the security of software packages in the supply chain, um, pulls together, you know, a bunch of telemetry from, you know, installing and running the packages, analyzing the contents of the packages uh, so that you can write you know, detection rules that detect the sort of things that we've seen used in supply chain attacks recently. So, you know, outbound connections to network resources from install scripts or weird patterns of change or type of squatted names. So collects a whole bunch of data, shoves it up in the Google Big Table so that people can write queries against this. Uh, and this makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a bun- obviously a bunch of things that, you know, engineers at Google and, and other places have learned from their work in the app stores, uh, you know, of, of code scanning. Applying this to the wider ecosystem just makes sense. And I think as you know, you expressed some surprise that this wasn't a thing that already, you know, existed and happened. Uh, so good to see it kind of made flesh and, you know, the code's on GitHub. If you want to go try it out, uh, use the data, write your own queries. Uh, they've already identified, you know, a couple of hundred examples uh, of, you know, package supply chain compromises as a result of this work. So yeah, just good stuff. Yeah, no, it is. And it's the sort of thing that we should have been doing for quite a while. So you just see <laughs> yes. that like they've done this thing and you're like, that's great. But hang on, you mean they weren't doing that previously? Ah, <laughs> uh, That's pretty crazy. Now, look, uh, we haven't spoken about CISA's list, ever rotating list of, and, and I realize I've lost the pronunciation more. It's not CISA, it's CISA. Okay, fine. All right. CISA uh, is maintaining a list of, uh, you know, routine, routinely exploited vulnerabilities. They seem to be pumping out a lot of really good actionable information about like, like what attackers are going after. And uh, apparently the list for 2021 says, yeah, log for shell, proxy log on, and Atlassian bugs uh, were, were, were top of the list. But 
I just find that Scissor is is genuinely releasing good info lately that people would do well to pay attention to. Yeah, you know, they've no, got these I, lists I, of like stuff that's being actively exploited and it's it's actually got currency. It's useful. Yes, yeah, useful, actionable information. It's really nice to see. Um, yeah, who'd have thought? Yeah. I know, I know. It's, <laughs> it's taken a while, but we've got there, which is really great. Um, yeah. And just such good work by that organisation. I won't even try and say the acronym anymore because I didn't realise it was SZA either. But yeah, the usual suspects you'd expect. There's no surprises on the list, I guess. Log for Shell at number one. You know, we did kind of say, well, this is going to be the end of the planet and then it kind of fizzed a little bit. But uh, as you pointed out, this is the list from 2021 and Log for Shell was at the end of 2021. So maybe it did actually burn a little bit faster um, than the pundits were saying. Not quite. Yeah, but I'm, I'm guessing. Bit. I'm guessing that included like log four shell in vendor products, though, right? Yeah, the Apache one, Zoho Manage Engine. I think we saw some stuff in VMware as well. So yes, there's you know the vendor as angle of it really did take over from you know kind of what Dimitri and I were you know predicting would, would melt the internet. So slightly validated, I think, is what I'm trying to say here. I feel slightly validated. There you go. And that's what's important, Adam. That's, that's uh, what's important, right? <laughs> yes, how I feel. <laughs> um, I got a blog post here from Rapid7 that says the VMware Workspace One access bug, uh, CVE 2022-22954, uh, is apparently being exploited like en masse at the moment. So that's, you know, we don't normally talk about individual bugs, but yeah, apparently, I mean, it's a CVSS 9.8 and people are using it. So I thought it was worth mentioning. <laughs> yeah, and in a, you know, internet facing product from VMware, VMware, yes, it's it's a big deal. So yeah, if you're in that ecosystem using the VMware stuff on the outside of your network, you really should be at the very least pay attention and be probably calling your incident response partner. <laughs> and uh, again, you know, not don't normally talk about bugs and whatever, but uh, Microsoft found a Linux desktop floor um, that uh, that they found a privesk basically and I just think it's cool because it's Microsoft doing Linux research, which I know always breaks you a little bit. And um, yeah, <laughs> looks like a pretty sweet bug. So it's a Linux local privesk in itself, not super exciting, but Microsoft's blog post about it uh, says that the way they identified it and did the necessary research was using a bunch of the Microsoft like Defender for Endpoint and other, you know, kind of security tooling on Linux, which, you know, we haven't really had great security tooling on Linux and Microsoft bringing all of the stuff they've done right in Windows uh, over to Unix platforms and then finding bugs, I think it's actually kind of cool. Makes Linux people sad, but still interesting to see them, you know, kind of touting their own tooling, finding bugs on Linux instead of Windows. So, yeah, cool. Now, why does, that, why does the headline here say that it's a desktop floor? Uh, the floor involves DBus, which is a subsystem used for kind of inter-process communications on Linux. The components and prerequisite conditions mostly are likely to exist on a desktop system. You know, it uses a system D network D communicating via DBus, which you know would exist on other non-desktop Linuxes. But yeah, I think the prerequisites probably only on on desktop platforms, which is why it's going to count like that. Did you just call them Linuxes? It's the plural of Linux, isn't it? Linuxes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, sure. <laughs> you learn something new every day. That's fine. Unix, Unixes, um, Unixon. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, cue the Benny Hill music because it's time mm -hmm. to talk about, uh, you know, the action in the, uh, the crypto space. Uh, we've had 13 million stolen from a DeFi platform humbly named Deus Finance. Uh, so that's... <laughs> 
fantastic. Yeah, 13.4 million flash loan attack. Uh, very funny. Uh, Binance has apparently frozen some stolen uh, Axie Infinity game crypto. Uh, uh, you know, this was the stuff where, where North Korea stole like $540 million worth of Ethereum. So apparently some of that's been frozen, but the North Koreans are throwing this thing through tumblers and they're trying and, you know, you just know they're going to get a lot of this out. But it certainly does look like it's getting harder. Uh, we've also got a story here about, uh, and Catalan covered this for us last week, uh, about the Everscale blockchain wallet. Like Checkpoint did some research into this thing. It's like an online crypto wallet that was so bad that they just pulled it offline. <laughs> yeah, they were able to like steal private keys or something from the web thing. And this was the, like this is Begat from the system built by like the Telegram people, I think, for doing cryptocurrency. So like, just... Just not great. <laughs> yeah, and there's been another 90 million stolen from Rari Capital and Saddle Finance. These are DeFi platforms as well. And uh, what do we got here? Uh, yeah, Lorenzo over at Vice has uh, uh, written a story up just wrapping some of this and saying that, pointing out that crypto hackers stole more than $370 million you know, worth of digital assets just in April. <laughs> so yeah, the North Koreans' uh, Patreon program is full steam ahead. Uh, so yeah, good job to the North Koreans for st stealing bored apes and uh, all of the other, you know, other joyous cryptocurrencies that they used to fund the nuclear weapons program and good job crypto bros for paying for it. Now, I don't know if you saw this, uh, Adam, but the Australian Electoral Commission weighed in on uh, crypto last week, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. this week. Did you see that? Uh, <laughs> yes, so someone was, <laughs> someone was asking them about why they're not using blockchain stuff. And, you know, that's, that's a fair question. They're like, well, look, you know, the election's coming up very soon. It's not as if we can just spin this up for next week. And then when someone, uh, you know, kept at it, their, their reply was, whoever's running the, the Australian Electoral Commission Twitter account did a great job here, said, our, our perspective as non-ICT, experts on social media is that it appears to be a technology designed to facilitate the theft of pictures of monkeys not sure how it would be relevant from an electoral standpoint so yes uh well done to the australian electoral commission that runs our elections seamlessly in australia with uh with uh, paper and pencils well done to them well done indeed to them, though. I do love a good bit of Twitter sass, especially from a, you know, kind of government agency. Yeah. <laughs> so savage. Just before we go, I just want to tell a story. Like one of the reasons that I'm, you know, quite critical of crypto is this immutability thing, right? Is when this money is gone, it is gone. Uh, just recently, a friend of mine's elderly mum decided that she wanted to help him uh, uh, buy a house, right? So she pulled together some money out of her pension account. Uh, in Australia, we call that superannuation. I think in America, it's, you know, 401k or whatever. Put some money in her account and just everything just lined up terribly, right? Because she got scam called. Really convincing scam call. They had a lot of her personal information, information about her family. It was expertly done. They tricked her into transferring $80,000 out of her accounts. So two... $20,000 transfers to Bank West from Commonwealth. Uh, and uh, uh, Bank West is owned by Commonwealth, so that was fortunate. And one forty grand transfer to Citibank. Now, half of that money's been recovered already. Okay, because she very quickly realized, oh my God, I've been scammed. Uh, thankfully, it happened on a Friday evening, was able to report the fraud on the Saturday. So the money from Bank West came back instantly. I think there's about eight, nine days left to go on City's 29-day, you know, uh, resolution window. But I would imagine that that money's coming back. Now, if she kept her money in stable coins, guess what? Gone burger. Gone burgers, right? So that's just something to keep in mind is that 
immutability sounds cool, but it's a bug, not a feature. <laughs> Amen. Yes. Amen. Well, mate, uh, thank you very much for joining us again this week. Uh, it's always a pleasure to chat to you. And uh, I would say we'll do it again next week, but we're off air for a couple of weeks. So I will catch you in three weeks, my friend. Have a wonderful time until I see you again. I look forward to all the bad things that happen whilst you're away. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. Uh, Before we get to this week's sponsor interview, I'd just like to let everyone know that I have finally published a demo of Airlock Digital to YouTube. Uh, It's a really great walkthrough of an allow listing solution that actually works. And yeah, the demo is great. I've dropped a link into this week's show notes uh, for people to check out if they're interested. Or you can just search YouTube for Risky Biz Product Demos and uh, you'll find our channel there. But yes, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Extra Hop Network's new chief executive, Patrick Dennis, who was appointed in February. Extra Hop, if you don't know, uh, makes a network security monitoring platform and you can find them at extrahop.com. And yeah, Patrick Dennis joined me this week to talk about this whole shields up concept. Various US government bodies are urging organizations to put up their magic cyber shields. And, uh, you know, this is a catch cry that you've heard Adam and I ridicule a bit uh, on the show. But that said, uh, Patrick Dennis says getting your house in order right now is probably a good idea, uh, given what the threat environment looks like right now. And putting your shields up might be as simple as using the current sense of urgency around Russian threats to just get some sensible stuff done. Here's what he had to say. I think there's some practical steps people can take. So, you know, let's start with an easy example. When was the last time a senior executive sat down with the security team and said, explain to me our security posture as it stands today? That's supposed to happen in many organizations because risks roll up through the CEO to the board of directors and that all happens in theory. But when was the last time somebody really just sat down and said like, hey, what is the current situation in security? What's our security posture? simple questions. Do we have full backups that we can restore from? Like, I think the first thing that you can do is a senior executive can sit down with the team and just try to understand the current posture for the organization. And if they did just that, it's likely that there are things that would um, pop out in that conversation that that person could then support in action with the team. And it's as easy as asking the question, right? I mean, that's that's how you get your to-do list, right? That's right. I mean, it really is like in some ways, you know, we make fun of it, right? Like it's so hard to put your shields up on the other way. On the other side of the coin, you could say like, it's actually pretty easy. We just need to make our to-do list. Right. And it's going to vary a little bit company to company, right? Like should people use two-factor authentication these days? Yeah, they probably should. Is everybody? Probably not. Like, should people be able to restore from backups? Yes. Can they? Maybe not. Well, I mean, that's a hard one to test, right? Which is, I think, uh, been one of the issues for uh, some of these organizations that have discovered that it's actually going to be easier for them just to pay the ransom than even when they do have backups, because that's a a technology that doesn't get exercised very often. It doesn't get exercised that often, but you can ask the question, at least go check, right? And then the other thing I'd say is, you know, most people probably haven't done is like, let's talk about what the response plan would be, right? Like, Everybody says that they have a response plan. Typically, most organizations, it is written down. But like, has anybody gone back through it recently and made sure? <laughs> yeah, that, or know, is it in a ring binder in a disused lavatory in a filing cabinet, you know, with a sign on it saying, beware of the leopard? 
Yeah, and let's double click on that one for like a second. Has anybody thought about what that response plan is going to be like in this new, you know, work from anywhere environment? Like, mm. I don't know. It's a good question to ask, right? Tease that out with the team. Do we actually know how we would respond in 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 today's working environment? Because I bet you the binder doesn't have uh, didn't really account for all that. See, I mean, I think this is my issue with the language around shields up is that everything that you have said, like literally yeah. everything that you've said is just generally good advice for peacetime. Like, why do we need an armed conflict for it to be sensible for, you know, executives to come and get a briefing from InfoSec every now and again? You know, like that just seems like 101. Uh, and it's amazing that we need something like this to actually get people's asses into gear, if you'll excuse my yeah, language. You know, I, I guess I just like, I look at it this way. I mean, first of all, you're exactly right. Like this shouldn't, this, it shouldn't take this A, and maybe once we get our shields up, so to speak, like, let's not let it come to this again, B. But, you know, we are in this moment, and I guess, you know, it's, I guess I, I would tell you, like, I'm pretty passionate about this, like, right now, because I think the likelihood of a proportional response uh, from Russia and from Russian sympathizers and from other groups is quite high. So I think we have this relatively small window in time where we can go like just make some improvements and we should take advantage of that time. And yeah. I'm not sure we're doing that, you know? I'm not no, sure no, that's, advantage. look, that is absolutely right that it's it's a good time, I think. And, and especially like depending on who you are as well, like in some of the stuff that you've written, you know, you made the point that there's going to be some destructive attacks likely against targets that have some sort of symbolic value to to the russians one example yeah. that you came up with which, where i'm like yeah absolutely i can i can see what you're talking about there is like swift right there's been so totally. much made of uh russia russia's swift ban which is kind of funny because they only had a few banks kicked off swift you know that which was done mostly as yeah. window dressing to calm everyone down like Russia did not get kicked off SWIFT, but because there's this huge widespread perception uh, that it was, I can totally see Russia going after an organization like that. And you weren't even writing this as a prediction. You were just using it as an no. example. And yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, what's interesting is like this particular conflict, there are a bunch of uh, coordinated sort of private sector sanctions that went into place. SWIFT is an example that I gave. Uh, but I think what's going to be inter equally interesting is like there's this uncoordinated set of sanctions from uh, private sector companies that wanted to kind the of the ones stand who up. pulled out, right? Like McDonald's yeah. and whatever. Yeah, Mc yeah, that's right. I mean, you might think about it like, okay, is not having a Big Mac on the corner in Russia super impactful in the beginning of the war? No, um, but do I think that you know that nation state's going to have a long memory? I do, and you know, I think. I think we're going to see many of those uh, private sector companies who who took a stand um, be targets of a response. Mm. Um, and, the Ruskies and so, are know, coming for your cheeseburgers. The Ruskies are coming for your cheeseburgers. <laughs> or, or, but you know, re remember to your point around symbolism. Would impacting McDonald's be something that would be noticed around the world? Yeah, it would be there every corner of the world, right? I can mm. get a I can get a cheeseburger in Tokyo, so. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure that anybody was thinking of that. I think most people were just saying, hey, we want to stand up in support of Ukraine, which I certainly understand um, and and am also supportive of. But I'm not sure that people thought through the, like the second and third order consequences. Right. Well, that's it. I mean, it is. I mean, that's a uniquely <laughs> that's a set of problems that has come along thanks to the whole cyber business. Right. Because who would have thought yeah. that a fast food chain 
uh, deciding to boycott a fascist aggressive state could turn into a problem for them in, in, in terms of having, you know, government APT crews coming after them. Like this is a distinctly modern uh, thing to have on your risk register. It, it certainly is modern. And I think the other thing that went under reported is just like, so the Ukraine uh, team put together this kind of IT army, right? And, um, you know, they did that using basic uh, social media tools, right? And, you know, if you go check that today, um, there's more than 300,000 people that are participating or in some way, shape or form right now. I'm sure not all 300,000 are super skilled in this that, and the other thing, but nonetheless, they coordinated a 300,000 person group that is interested enough um, that they get daily updates to go, you know, consider attacking uh, Russia, right? It, so it's that- interesting. You actually raised something interesting because DDoS secrets have been posting just untold amounts of Russian data that has been stolen by people who are trying to support Ukraine. The reason it hasn't really hit the mainstream news, though, and I do find this interesting, it's it's interesting in how uninteresting it is, is because yeah. the, this data is completely boring. You know, it's like the, the entire database and document dump from some regional you know, uh, yeah. railway bureaucracy, it's enough to put you to sleep. So I just, I, I do wonder what, how far all of that's going to go, you know? You know, I think what I think about is this, right? So, you know, if, if there are people doing that right now, jumping on Telegram and thinking about where they can go do DDoS attacks to support Ukraine, I mean, when this flips and there's a set of Russian sympathizers, and there certainly are, um, you know, where, where are those people going to point their proverbial cyber uh, weapons and attacks, they're going to go back at these companies that sanctioned Russia. So, I mean, I just think we should assume, and I think it's very rational to assume there's going to be some proportional response here. And it, and it may just not, it may not come directly from the nation state. And Russia has always been notorious for having attacks that are difficult to do attribution right back to the nation state, but are obviously supported by them. Uh, I think we're going to see it be pretty widespread. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with that, right? Whereas you're going to see a lot of low quality attacks coming so, from people who are all, as I've said on the show a bunch of times, they're all hopped up on nationalist fervor, right? Like they're, they're coming yeah. for your for your uh, brochureware websites that you forgot you had, right? Like they are going to get defaced big time soon. Yeah, and, and you know, it's funny, right? Like you think about it. So even if the quality of the tax is not super high in some cases, I think you're going to see a volume that's that's substantial. Yeah. And then think about where we started this conversation. We started it by kind of acknowledging that many companies haven't just put basic hygiene into uh, InfoSec for some time. So it's not going to necessarily take an incredibly high quality attack against some of these folks that have decided to sanction Russia. It's just going to take a little bit of effort. And I think we're going to see an environment where there's plenty of people that are around to put in a little bit of effort. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're doing a little bit of speculative um, navel-gazing right now. I think one thing that we have to be realistic about, though, is that we just don't know really what's going to happen in, in the next 18 months. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think anyone knows. Um, but I do know a tank cost for the new tank that the Russians have been uh, considering is $4 million, rough and tough, U.S. to put together. And you can do an awful lot of cyber activity for 4 million us right so you know i think you're right nobody exactly knows um 
but there certainly are a lot of indications that it's it's a worthwhile time for us to go through and do like we were talking about earlier just basic hygiene to get ready because it seems like this is an environment where things will be busier Patrick Dennis, thank you so much for joining us uh, to share your thoughts on what Shields Up actually means. Uh, it's it's uh, great to have that conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Patrick Dennis there, Chief Executive of Extra Hop Networks, with some fairly sensible advice. Big thanks to Patrick Dennis for that, and big thanks to Extra Hop for being a risky business sponsor. And that's it for this week's show. I'll be back with a soapbox edition of the show in the next couple of weeks. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.